Good morning, and welcome back to Clerics Wear Ringmail, the podcast. As you may have noticed, uh, OSR October has come to a very glowing conclusion, but I just haven't gotten that call-in episode out. I got a lot of call-ins, I got a lot of material, and I really want to pass it your way, but I don't have a lot of time right now. We're getting killed at work, getting killed at home, and the holiday season doesn't bode well to change any of that anytime soon. So what I got for you today, I have an episode I was working on prior to OSR October, and there's a little context going into our previous regular episode talking about metagaming, link in the show notes, uh, in case you need a refresher, and uh, a little something something about guilds and why guilds will ruin your game. Hey Taylor, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Just finished listening to your latest episode on all the call-ins related to uh, player uh, metagaming versus player knowledge and player skill. Um, great episode. Thought everybody had a lot of good feedback. I'm glad everybody really enjoyed uh, having your guest on. I-, I did as well, and I hope you can get more guests in the future um, that are a little bit outside of our bubble and um, you know just expands everybody's everybody's uh, listening and and what they viewpoints that they might get exposed to. Thank you very much, my man. Yeah, definitely bring in some other voices in, especially if they're voices you may hear about. So I know that the Anchorverse is uh, pretty pretty small. We, we pretty much know each other, even though there's like two dozen or so of us. But there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of content creators out there. And one of the coolest parts about being a part of that community, kind of ingraining into the community, has been how easy it's been. Uh, all of these content creators are people and they'll chat you up they will find some time we'll do it and it's it's making the world a smaller place bringing us closer to the g plus kind of architecture that we were in at that point and yep anything we can do to share those ideas to bring those experiences together and uh, to take the enthusiasm from our younger converts combine that with the experience of our uh, long-term grognards make that into a kick-ass experience that's that's the goal and I, I really feel privileged to be a part of trying to recreate or create for the first time who knows uh, the uh, that kind of community that the uh, nostalgia glasses tend to give to people so I actually had uh, I had a Kickstarter in mind that I looked at that I was uh, reaching out to the creator to see if they wanted to come on the air and promote but then um, I was uh, I was surprised to see it was unbackable. Was, oh my! I remember I saw this in August. <laughs> so apparently, if I'm going to start doing this, I need to be a little bit more proactive about getting people on. Because uh, talking about Kickstarter is a month late. That's uh, now the second time I've done this. But um, <laughs> but the moral story is I will try to try to be more proactive. If there's someone out there who wants to be involved, if there's someone out there who has a product you want to promote, and I did get a product, a review copy of a module in the mail from somebody recently, which I'm going to review uh, after I get a chance to print it out and take a look, but um, 
Where was I? A um, couple of things I wanted to mention. One, what is wrong with the education system in your area if anybody ever tried to teach you that, you know, a boa constrictor should eat you from the feet up and that you should just lay there? And it's like, that is terrible advice. That is awful. Don't, don't, don't do that, people. Um, number two as well, I guess, on, on just teaching basic things, I think uh, a course in basic civility might be um, in order for some of the callers. Or maybe a boa constrictor. Um, at times, uh, there's been a lot of aggression recently. On a more serious note, I, I do agree with that statement. The community we have is the community we make. And while I have a vaguely thick skin, I'm not worried if, if someone wants to call in and uh, be aggressive with me, uh, I will usually try to think about it in the context of what's being communicated. Now, I'll point you to an episode of Random Screed. I called in and talked about a buddy from Massachusetts who he was more direct, more blunt, and uh, with my southern sensibilities, we didn't see eye to eye at first until I realized that what he was trying to communicate. Now, that's not necessarily true for all cases, but the idea is the same. It's important to focus on the ideas to produce the good uh, experience, while at the same time, it's very important to keep in mind our audience and our tone to try to make sure that those ideas come across in a way that's constructive to the hobby. Now, I. This coming from a guy who did an episode a while back called Don't Be Nice. I'll link that also. <laughs> so we don't want to get ourselves into a situation where uh, we're in a consensus fallacy where we can't have disagreements over fear of offending one another. But at the same time, it's important to disagree in a constructive way and try to produce, oh, a bunny. We're producing a bunny. It's sitting by my garbage can. What was I talking about? I do believe it's important to produce an environment where we're discussing things productively. I reserve the right to remove messages or to not play messages, which I don't feel are made in good faith. Uh, I reserve the right to end discussions that are made in bad faith. Um, at the same time, I will paraphrase if I think it's a good discussion to have. I may cut a message up, but I give you my word. I will never change the meaning. I will never remove words from a message. I may cut it in half to speak in the middle like I'm doing right now. <laughs> but I, like I said, I will uh, do my best to promote the kind of environment that you're talking about. And it, I, if that means that some messages make it to the air, some messages get paraphrased, and some messages don't, so be it. Um, and then number three, the thing I really want to talk about on the call-in is a comment you made in passing, um, and it's a comment I agree with, but I would be very interested in hearing you expand on it um, if you haven't already in the past, and that is you made a comment saying you don't like adventuring guilds, and I'd love to hear more on what your reason is for not liking them um, or what you think the alternatives are or what you think the problems with them are. Um, again, I, I, I'm i on the same page with you with it, I think, at least as far as the general concept. I don't know if I'm on the same page with you as the reasons, and that's why I'm asking to make, make an episode on that, but um, I'd be very interested in hearing it. So keep up the fantastic work, sir, and we will talk again soon. Take care. Just kidding. But that would have made an awesome introduction for the episode, wouldn't it? Ah, uh, yes. Guilds. I'm not really big on guilds. And, but in order to explain why, we first have to think about what do guilds perform function-wise in the game 
to bring them in in the first place. First, for the referee, the benefit is a, a couple key things. First, the guild hall gives the party a way to act when they don't have initiative. You can have the guild master assign them tasks. You can have a bulletin board with local jobs that they could pursue. You could have rumors or maps available for purchase or carousing in the guild hall with other members. So it's a communication avenue, first and foremost, to get your party moving. Secondly, it's a way to tax your players. A lot of people will complain that the system as written has too much gold involved. You're moving literal tons of the stuff around as part of your day-to-day -day life as an adventurer. A guild hall gives you an opportunity to tax your players so they can, one, you can take money away from them as part of their dues, but two, rules as written, the guild is where you would go for training. In first edition, or the advanced editions, training was part of your leveling process. So where in the basic line, or in the original line, you would level when your XP hit a sufficient amount, in the advanced game, you paid a trainer and spent a certain amount of time, the cost of both of which were dependent on your rating as how well you played your class. This gold tax prevented the player from accumulating tremendous sums of wealth and contributed to the continued necessity of resource management, uh, while also the time tax promotes, if using a uh, true one-to-one, uh, -one, not one-to-one, -one, if using strict time, it promotes troop play. While one character is in jail for training, then you play a different character while that first one finishes up. There are a couple benefits for troop play. Uh, one, you make sure you flesh out the party because you have multiple characters that can fill the role. Two, you have a replacement character in case your high-level character dies. Three, the time tax prevents tyranny of the spotlight where the player which plays the most is going to have the biggest most powerful character and I did an entire episode on that we can rewind to that other episode if we want to talk about the benefits of strict timekeeping but in short troop play is a net positive and guilds will kind of encourage that further what do guilds do for the party one they can serve as a way to stow your loot. Uh, a lot of guild halls will have an opportunity to stow stuff. Two, it might be access. You can get access to services like a furrier or a blacksmith. They might be associated with the guild. Uh, similar lodging. Uh, a lot of guild halls will have lodging capabilities and you'll have contacts immediately in a new place where the guild has established itself. And it's a way for the party to establish themselves to make ties with the local community. And uh, if you striate them, like a Fighter's Guild, a Thieves' Guild, a Mage's Guild. It's a way to uh, reinforce the archetypal selection of class. So, knowing what guilds do in your campaign world, that's a line-by-line -line explanation for why I don't like them. <laughs> First, providing initiative for a party that doesn't want to play. I've always been of a mind that why are you at the table if you don't want to play? The primary driver 
in OSR style gaming, in old school gaming, is exploration. You should want to advance. You should want to grab gold. You should want to become a lord. That's the point of playing an OSR game. You show up, you explore the dungeon. You map it out and you extract its riches. You build a party and you explore the wilderness. You map it out and you set yourself up in that wilderness as a domain lord or a wizard tower or cleric stronghold. The point is that the purpose of the game relies on player initiative and I would submit that if the players don't have that initiative they would be better suited playing another game. Uh, that's not saying I'm not welcoming of them at my table that's saying that they would enjoy other games more and I'm not here to feed you what you want to do. You should know what you want to do as the player. And if I have a mechanism in game that reinforces lazy player syndrome, that's not the table I want to run. I want to run a table where the party members call into podcasts, uh, post on discords, they talk about their adventures, they collaborate with each other to organize how are we going to move forward together. That's the kind of table I want to run. I want excitement. I want engagement. If you have a mechanism that damages that kind of engagement, that's not a good mechanism to have. Second, we'll talk about gold and time sinks. Gold sinks. I've never had a problem with this. If you want your players to be poor, just switch to the silver standard and keep the gold prices. That's easy. Still, they will get wealthy. They will succeed. Smart players will draw treasure out of uh, the dungeon, but you need that treasure. If you have too much poor player syndrome, then you run into the problem that you can't advance. If you are always rubbing coppers together, then you're never going to be able to build that warband. You're never going to be able to build that army. You're never going to be able to afford that castle. And you're denying yourself two-thirds of the game. You're, deny you're, you're playing basic, but you're not playing expert. You're not playing companions. That's uh, two-thirds of the game that you're missing. Time tax. I agree with time taxes. I like that. There's obvious tangible benefits for time taxes, but you don't need a guild to do that. A guild master uh, may be able to provide that service and you can just kind of park them and move on to your next player character. Or you can seek out a uh, hidden tower thought to have been overgrown deep in the jungle and to learn that new spell. Or you can trek to the top of a monastery and learn hidden techniques from a blade master who's been meditating uh, for uh, on his hermetic retreat. Those options are way more fun. Those options sound way more cool. Make a session out of it. Make a session out of getting there. or Make them earn it. Make it be a story worth telling. When you have a mechanism in the game that provides an avenue to circumvent opportunity for memorable adventures, that's not a good mechanism. I want to play a game where the party in, is intrigued. I want to play a game where exploration is the main focus. And knowing that, having a guaranteed guild hall, having a guaranteed point of contact, having a simple time tax jail mechanism versus having an epic adventure, I'll take epic adventure every single time.
Next, thinking about player benefits. First, storage. Why would I build my domain stronghold if I can just store it at the guild hall? Don't do this. The purpose of the wealth that you accumulate in-game is to allow you to participate in domain play. Having too much gold, having too much resources where you have to figure out how you're going to store them, that's an incentivizer. That's a feature, not a bug. That's a way to force your characters to think about supply chains, to force your characters to think about buildings, about infrastructure. That is a, like I said, that's a feature, not a bug. Putting a guild in that gives you an access to a free service that otherwise you would have to think about a mechanism uh, to create, to make it happen, make it happen. Make the players think. Make the players do. Again, by, dis by removing the necessity of figuring out how to store your stuff, you remove an element of the game that promotes advancement through the stages. And again, you're denying yourself two-thirds of the game. Next, free lodging. I'm not big on this. Uh, same reason before I want my characters to think about lodging uh, as part of their character management adventure figuring out. But at the same time, I don't want friendly faces in every town. You can kind of mitigate this. Uh, you can say that the guildmaster in this hall is the enemy of the guildmaster in the other hall and they're competing against each other, or, or this guildmaster or these guild members are kind of at a racket and they're making it hard for the players. You can do that, sure, but I would much rather look at the original D&D campaign setting. Greyhawk? No, older than that. The original Little Brown Books they came with instructions that said a good map to use, if you so desired, was Outdoor Survival. What's on the Outdoor Survival map? Well, original copies are hard to come by, and I believe new copies are not in print. However, the map itself is super easy. If you Google it, it's there. Uh, so you look at this map, and there are food storages, there are water sources, there are ranger towers. It's designed for modern, uh, or modern in the 70s, uh, Exp uh, being lost in the woods, but in OD&D it talks about, okay, replace the ranger tower with a castle, uh, replace the uh, food cache with a dungeon, that kind of stuff. And so you have these adventures locales, you have these, some of them friendly, some of them unfriendly, some of them neutral, that could be either way depending on how well you play your cards. That is adventure. That is what we've come to call in the OSR sphere as points of light. There are places where you can adventure to and make friends. There are places where you will have friends where you can retreat to. And there are places where there will not be friends. There are places where you're going to delve in and get out or come in with an army and wipe out so that you can take it for yourself. Points of light and uh, I won't get into too much detail, the other idea of a post-post-apocalypse, but the, the important part here is your setting is not supposed to be medieval Europe. Your setting is supposed to be the American West in 1840, except swords. The 
principle of exploration is founded in a rugged individualism that fueled the obsession in the 50s and 60s with American Westerns. There are places where there is law, there are, pla there are much more where there is not. And that's what you're there for. You're here to either carve your own law out of the countryside, or you're here to join the forces of chaos. Whichever destination you choose, That, that rugged individualism, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps aesthetic, that is the spirit of the game. That is the spirit of the game for the player. That is also the spirit of the game for the referee. That end paragraph where it says, where the rules do not have a rule, make up your own. Uh, where the du a dungeon isn't, draw a dungeon. That rugged individualism, I've said that three times now, so I'm just repeating it to kind of drive it in. That spirit is the spirit of old school play for me, and that is the spirit of the campaign I want to run. I want to run a game where the players pull themselves up by their bootstraps and build something where nothing was before. And there you have it. Some empirical evidence and analysis, definitely not an op-ed that shows off how guilds are anti-OSR and will ruin your game. From here, we're at about the 20 minute mark, so we'll round us out to half an hour by throwing in some more call-ins, taking in before the Octo-SR. Take it away, callers. Hi Taylor, this is James Eck of Mindweave RPG. I wanted to call in. Uh, I loved the the episodes on metagaming and the call in afterward. Um, had a great time listening to that, but wanted to get in a mention for dungeon masters in metagaming, which can be equally dangerous, if not more so, when the dungeon master reveals a rumor and decides only after the players have decided whether to believe it or not whether the rumor is true, or responds has the enemies respond to player HP or players being out of spell slots when the the monsters wouldn't necessarily be able to know that or in encountering balancing encounters to be exactly perfect for the party's composition. These are ways that the dungeon master can metagame and they can really also be detrimental. Of course, depending on your school of play. I agree with two of those three. And I think that it applies to all schools of play, to be honest, so long as it's not story time school of play. That is, if you're actually playing a game with consequences, then definitely the Dungeon Master metagaming is adversarial behavior and inappropriate at the table. Counting backwards, the third thing you mentioned, balancing encounters to the party. This damages the player's experience because it takes away the risk. Balancing the encounter to the party is a time-honored tradition since 3.5, and to be fair, there's a little bit of balancing going on in the old school editions with HD to level depth, but it's not remotely the way it is in the current edition where I'm led to believe I don't play it 
honestly. Uh, I have not played it since Fandelver came out. Uh, but what I've been told is that the math works out to X encounters per day and Y rests. And then so you have a plan. You have, you have your module that will accommodate a certain number of encounters and a certain number of assumptions of rest. And that's how you balance it out. That's boring. Good night. That would get so boring. If I wanted to play a skirmish game, I would play Chainmail or Mordheim. D&D is so much more than that. And having that balance, having that plan ahead of time, it's reducing it to math homework for you, the referee, and two, railroading. Because if I'm sticking to plan, that means I have to quantum quantum ogre you. No, balancing your encounters aggressively as a DM habit, definitely bad for the experience. That second one you mentioned, second from either way, whether how you mentioned it or how I'm reading them, DM metagaming, classic, classic. That is probably the biggest that DM moment I can think I, I, that I think I hear. Because you think about it, the DM knows everything. It's their world. They are the AI and the computer of this game. So it's very difficult for them to not know what's going on uh, with the obvious exception of what the player themselves is thinking. So I'm thinking back to uh, playing in the comic shop. We used to have that league going and we would have other DMs come in and out. One fellow came in and the first thing that they did was the in an encounter, the bad guys would pile on the uh, specialty priest type character. I forget the exact configuration, but it was a lightly armored healer. And it's like, whoa, 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 this is, uh, if this is a combat driven module, why are they targeting that guy? Why are they going around? What, what kind of tactics are they using? How do you justify this? So definitely adversarial move on the part of the DM, definitely an adversarial behavior that I wouldn't do at home. Fortunately, in the comic shop, the guys were having a blast. They they just played through it and uh, adapted, and it became a more competitive experience. So I guess that opens a question. Is adversarial behavior defined... Is adversarial defined empirically? That is, is there a pure, cut-and-dry adversarial action, or is it contextual? If the players and the referee both are gaming the system is that metagaming is that adversarial play or is that just the type of game they like to go after each other about i'm gonna have to think about that the last one on the list that's the one i'm not sure i agree with you on uh is it dm metagaming for the dm to decide if a rumor is true or not as you encounter it is that metagaming or is that lazy dungeon master prep Improvising. Improvising is a virtue, isn't it? So would that be a metagame thing? Or would that be adapting to circumstances and honing your skills? Sly Flourish would tell us that might be, uh, that might be a uh, good thing. Yeah, who knows? Other callers, what do you think? Thank you, James, for the call-in. And just a second note on player metagaming. The real cut-and-dry case of metagaming that I tend to encounter is when one character is acting on knowledge that another character has, but that character does not have. And this happens frequently when you have um, players have multiple characters each. 
And so one character might know this thing about the world that the other character that they, they also play doesn't know and their actions. It can be very difficult as a player to, to compartmentalize those two characters and not act on that knowledge. But also similarly, when a player knows something that other characters played by other players know, and they go to act on it, like, like say the lookouts have been attacked outside the dungeon and they know that only because they're sitting at the table and they run back out to go and help. That That's a, one of the clear-cut examples of metagaming. I'm reminded of a game I used to play when I lived in Georgia. That was kind of fun. Now, the guys who were running it were a little more story gamey, a little more narrative-driven than uh, I like to be. However, the, he had some cool stuff he used to do. They had a pretty big house. Uh, they, the gaming area uh, was... They had multiple gaming areas they really loved. The, the hobby uh, and double income no kids who would have thunk <laughs> who would have thunk that would have gotten you a better gaming area huh. anyway the important part when they had that kind of situation I've written about how you can manage it as a referee in terms of keeping the table engaged keeping the table interested keeping the uh, players moving and the game moving despite having a split party when he had a split party we went to split rooms so we would bounce back and forth and if you were on the outside you had no idea what was going on the inside and that was pretty cool uh it also worked out pretty well because he had friendly dogs and so if you would split the party you would have these alternating turns to pet the dog and who doesn't who doesn't like that a win-win here you have the total immersion factor of being in a different area than your split party and then you have the dog that you get to pet so wonder what the thaco is on a yorkie and there we have it in three two one we have hit the 30 minute mark and with that in mind i will give you the rest of your day back thank you for listening i'm enjoying writing the episode up gonna try to get through some of the call-in backlog maybe in short stints like this and push them out as i'm able to go but i appreciate your listening i appreciate your patience with me as i uh, move through a somewhat challenging uh, spell of uh, my life so i won't bore you with it as always, between now and when I talk to you again, delve on. And, in this case, do a little delving for me while you're at it. Happy Thanksgiving. Clip Square Ring Mail Podcast is an independently owned and operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This license, which is kind of like Creative Commons, except f- licensing. Segments recorded within a vehicle are recorded using a Bluetooth hands-free device in conjunction with local vehicular safety legislation. The music for the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast is Cold Coffee by Michael Ramirez C, retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit royalty-free music license. Sound effects used in the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast are also retrieved from Mixkit.co and used in accordance with the Mixkit-free sound effects license. Clear Square Ring Mail does not ascribe to nor endorse views or opinions expressed by call-ins, guests, or even the host, unless you think they're awesome, and thus does not assume any liability regarding the consumption or distribution of this podcast. By listening to the Clear Square Ring Mail Podcast, you agree to these provided terms. Parties with questions regarding these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to reach out to Clear Square email at the prescribed methods provided on the clearest wearing email blog. Parties dissatisfied with these terms, conditions, or releases are encouraged to go suck an egg.